Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. This is New Books in Science, and I'm Maya Wolner, your podcast host. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Soraya de Chadarivian about her new book, Heredity Under the Microscope, Chromosomes and the Study of the Human Genome, published by University of Chicago Press earlier this year. Dr. de Chadarivian is professor at University of California, Los Angeles, where she teaches the history of science, technology, and medicine in both the Department of History and the Institute for Society and Genetics. She has an advanced degree in biology and a PhD in philosophy, which gives her an interdisciplinary background. Before joining UCLA, she worked at the University of Cambridge and has published widely on the history of 20th century biology and biomedicine. She is interested in the material and visual practices of the biomedical sciences and the place of these sciences in the broader culture. Hello, Dr. Shadaivian. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Hello. It's very nice to be here. So I'll start out by asking you what I like to ask all of the authors that I interview, and that is, what inspired you to investigate the history of chromosomal research? Um, So I first got interested in chromosomes, really, because I was curious to know what was going on in the big um, uh, radiobiological lab that, that that was set up next to nuclear research stations in the 50s, and I'm mainly speaking about the early post-war years, 1950s and 60s. And um, so this was at the dawn of the atomic age. And here, the study of human chromosomes loomed large. So these are these were really large radiobiological research stations, and nobody had really looked at what is going on there. And so what I found there was that chromosomes were very much in the center of a lot, not of all, but a lot of research that was going on there. And so I realized that this human chromosome research really only took off in this period and that it had much to do with this atomic context at the time. And so more I dug, the more the story expanded, as I find that these same techniques were then also used for all kinds of other things. So that's one reason. The other things about which I was intrigued from the beginning actually was that all this, this microscopic study of um, the human chromosomes really thrived at exactly the time uh, when molecular approaches to heredity were uh, celebrating their biggest advances. And that, of course, was a field I had worked on um, extensively. But in historical accounts of postural genetics, postural biology, these chromosome studies are really very rarely mentioned. And so... um, why this was so, why they weren't mentioned is maybe something we can talk about later. But it's also clear that um, the chromosome researchers really occupied the field of human genetics, which molecular geneticists often explicitly distanced themselves from, because that field was much too compromised from its association with the racial theories and eugenic practices of the preceding decades. And uh, cytogeneticists were not oblivious uh, to this past, but they thought that with their techniques, 
they could put human genetics on a new solid basis. That's actually a quote from uh, one of these people at the time. So what could be more objective, really, than counting chromosomes under the microscope? So in the book, really, chromosomes become this sort of analytical lens to gain insight where human heredity, where human heredity stood at the time and where it was embraced and where it was debated or rejected. So obviously, when we're talking about the microscope, the visual comes to the forefront. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit uh, about how we look at these chromosomes. Maybe you can explain how the scientists prepared uh, chromosomes for visual analysis. And then um, a dovetailed question would be, I know that you've worked on on models in science in previous publications, and maybe you could talk a little bit about how then you, as a researcher, uh, used this kind of methodology potentially in this project for how you approached your sources. Yeah, so the visual practices is something I have long been interested in, and they clearly play an important role here. And so maybe, yes, it's very useful to know what are these chromosomes and how actually can we study them? Because they're not directly visible. So they are, if you, chromosomes really are a packaged up form of the DNA just before the cell divides. You know, it's sort of a preparing for dividing. It's in this chromosome format that then the chromosomes actually separate and then are divided in the daughter cells. So it's only in a particular moment of the life cycle of a cell that you, you can even see the chromosomes. But also then, to see them, you need to do a lot of things. You know, you need, you need to, 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 to stain them so that they are becoming visible. And also then they would be normally completely clumped up. So you want to move them aside so that they're actually nicely spread out. And, and also, so you have to do all these prepar- preparatory steps with the cells to even see the chromosomes, right? That eventually then, you have a preparation that it can move below your, um, be under your microscope and look at it. And then initially, if you do it for the first time, you might not even um, be able to see much, but you would see small structures. And then, uh, you know, the difficult thing is to make sense out of it. But that's, uh, that is a training that's needed. It actually takes a year to train a cytogeneticist and it takes it. Uh, much longer to to make a proficient cytogeneticist. So that's a real skill. So chromosome research is all about these visual practices, about making visual uh, visible, and also the chromosome images then, you know, they they circulate it widely, and it's all about the evidence, the visual evidence these chromosome images can provide, which is the center of much debate. So yeah, visual visual practices are very much in the center of this book. And um, it is something I have been uh, involved with before. And so in the book, I argue actually that the, this visual, the fact that chromosomes, a chromosome research was all about this visibility was the strength, but also the weakness of this field. And um, I don't know if you want me to expand here or we can come back to this later. Well, sure, actually. I think that's a very interesting point because I do remember and recall that that statement. So w- what can you tell us about how it made the field stronger, but also potentially how it made it a weakness uh, for its critics? So what it was a strength because it was actually the fascination of these images. You know, so there's a famous quote by one of, uh, you know, the prominent human geneticist at the time who said, you know, looking at these chromosomes and being able to tell out of this one photograph, 
you know, the mental, um, the, the mental uh, intelligence level, the behavior and the sexual character, um, um, just reading it out from this photograph of an individual was just about as astonishing as looking at a picture of the backside of the moon. And this was when just the very first images of the backside of the moon taken by a Soviet satellites were circulating. So this was highly exciting. And the point was it because you could really see it, right? Once you learned how to read these things. And um, also you could see the whole genome. That is actually something that no genetic technologies, even today, the genomic technologies, you know, that you have these long letters, but there you can't see at a glance um, what's it, what it is about. And that is what fascinated so much uh, the researchers at the time. Um, and there are many reports, you know, of these slides, shows being shown and the, the, and the people gasping. <laughs> um, uh, so these are really the strengths. Um, that you can see it and then you can also point it out. For instance, in the clinical context, um, you know, once you can point out, so this is where there is a little bit of a chromosome missing or not missing and so on, and this then is the basis for the diagnosis. Now, the weakness is that, uh, and this is, of course, especially in the eyes of the detractors, like, for instance, the molecular biologists, that they say, you know, this is just um, is merely descriptive. We, what we really need, it's not enough to look at these images, right? What we really need is to know the molecular mechanism behind it, especially the mechanism, right? And so that's actually a long tradition and a long debate in the history of science about um, the importance of images in relation, uh, no, no, images and numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of where is really the evidence, right? And so that makes it in the eyes of some, you know, because it's mostly visual evidence, even if they, of course, tried, they, they tried to measure things and compare them. And some people insisted we need these measurements. But mostly it was, it, some people contested it. They said, we can just see the differences. And um, um, while, of course, also molecular biologists, for instance, do use images, but then it's very much about the numbers you can pull out of these images. So in the end, it's against again about figures and numbers. Um, and so there is a real difference also in the training um, to learn to do these different things. Would you also consider one of the strengths of the visual, the visual evidence dimension of, uh, of these uh, chromosomes to be how in the public sphere they became sort of iconic representations of personality and the self. Yeah, that is all this, this, this impact these images did, right? And when I say, because you may wonder, I mean, where could people see this? Yeah, of course, in the, in the, in the clinical context was one, but they were also on the first pages of uh, newspapers. They were, they were really sort of iconic images. And it is then the, the lined up chromosomes, right? Um, um, there were also all kinds of artworks. And, um, but also, yeah, this idea that this represents the person and this idea is really something that is still with us right the genes are us or we are our genes right it's contested but it's also very much around and um and, i mean this uh cytogeneticist they they really uh, played with it i mean for instance you see in the archives i found a christmas card of uh, you know, a set of chromosomes and they said uh, by a well-known uh, cytogeneticist, Italian, and he said, um, my chromosomes wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> so, also, also even visiting cards, you know, one 
um, a researcher couldn't um, come to a meeting. And so she said, you know, so that I'm not completely missing, I sent you a photo of my chromosomes. So, so you find these representations of, you know, that this is really me. Um, is uh, is very present uh, and is fascinating fascinating people at the time and I think st- still exercises this fascination. That's very interesting. So you've mentioned a little bit uh, or you've given reference to the historical context a little bit when you discussed initially uh, radiobiology and also now you've uh, alluded to the to the far side of the moon pictures. Um, and I was wondering actually if you could give our listeners a little bit more of a sense about the post-World War II historical context of this research and how nuclear politics and the specificities of the atomic age-informed chromosomal research? Yeah, so chromosome research was going on before, but it was very difficult to work with with human materials. So much of the research happened with plant cells or insects also, but plant cells, because they have much fewer uh, chromosomes, they are much clearer to see, much easier to get to to the material, and also there was a hope um, or the expectation that this might be useful for plant breeding. Um, so on, but also to understand how chromosomes work. These were much better model model organisms. But um, with the um, um, atom, with the use of atomic energy and the need to understand mutations in humans, it wasn't really enough any longer to look at plant models because it was clear that things would work differently. Um, you know, it was there were questions about what these radiations did on humans. And what did it what did it especially do on on their genomes? And so chromosome research really you um, you know you can see the mutations on the genetic levels. Of course, only some you know that, that are visible with the techniques of the time. You could actually really see them. So it's also that then this and, and you and, and you can also quantify them actually. Um, so you see breakages, you see linkages, um, you see missing or doubled chromosomes. You see all kinds of strange things. And so you can systematize this. And this was also used for dosimetry to to see how much research um, an individual had received. So that was really the context where there was a lot of push to develop methods to uh, work with human chromosomes, of which there are many more. Um, There are 44. At the time, the people were thinking there were uh, 48, actually. Um, And then, uh, you know, looking closer, they thought there were 46. Um, but um, and so it was really the atomic context that provided the context. I mean, also that was also one of the reasons why this research happened in the uh, in these uh, places where there was actually radiation was available uh, as uh, you know to study these things, um, and also um, the money was available and and the interest. And so and if one follows this. Because then one really sees it all over the place. You have to look for it. But once you look for it, you see it all over the place. I mean, these people were working in these institutions, which were connected to this uh, radio um, um, uh, nuclear energy research sites. They were um, funded through these sources. And they were studying, you know, they were going to these explosion sites um, um, and studying um like in Japan, but also in the Pacific, to observe these exposures and make the experiments, on. and um, and um, is 
and so also the this the strategists themselves they, they were they, they were working on different of these committees and they you know it was a, a, a problem of defining permissible doses um and so th- they participated in this based on their research so there was a, a great and also they argued for more research in genetics because to understand better the genetic uh, structure of human um, individuals and populations because only if that was known and not much was known then one could see what changes this new situation was producing we are now talking about the mid 50s the problem of um, the global fallout following this continuous atmospheric testing uh, in the pacific but also in the north sahara and um, in the nevada test site for instance and um, so this phenomenon of global fallout what does this produce on the human genome so was there a sort of widespread fear then about exposure to radiation or potentially other kinds of pollutants and toxins that helped spur this scientific research? Or was it more sort of going in the opposite direction that scientific research was then illuminating uh, the potential dangers of these kinds of exposures? Yeah, I would think it, will, it went into both sides. There was concern. So the, the research to show, you know, that there is this fallout and that it actually has an effect um, was confirming it, right? And um, so it created the problem and also confirmed it, but also was part of it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of really connected to it. And of course, that was not the only uh, the only way to study these things, but it was an important uh, an important um, an important part, a possible. Way. I mean, actually, for the dosimetric test for a while, the chromosome test was the test. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and from then, you know, it moved into all kinds of other directions. But I really think that this is where the study of human chromosomes in the post-war era really, really is rooted. So you've mentioned in passing already the different chromosome counts um, and the recount from 48 to 46. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, but then also why was that so important for the application of this early chromosome research to clinical medicine? And then perhaps you can also illuminate some of the early descriptions of chromosomal diseases that relied on this new way of, of counting chromosomes. Yeah, so this is one of the big uh, stories that you that you hear in the history of science generally, right? So uh, in the 1920s, researchers, when they started studying chromosomes of humans and other, mostly others, but also humans, they decided that um, humans had 48 chromosomes. And so this count that was agreed, you know, with a number of um, people and so on, um, was you know, stood as as really uncontested for, let's see, from the 1920s to the 1950s. And people continued producing counts of 48. And so then in the 1956, it was for the first time suggested that actually, no, humans have only 46 chromosomes. And so what was even more dramatic was that looking back at old pictures, people said, oh, actually, there are 46. So even the older pictures seemed to confirm, even they were much more difficult to interpret, um, they seemed to confirm that now, oh, no, there were always 46, right? And so that was a big um, a, a question, opened up big questions. How is it that science, you know, produces always the same results, even if actually that's, um, you know, how, how is it that they are just confirmed? Um, uh, the same results, even if they're not conform to the truth. 
um, so that's a big story, you know, uh, how, how about how science works and how mistakes are corrected. But for the field of cytogenetics, this came out of this renewed interest in human chromosome research and, you know, looking closer, having better techniques uh, at, at the hand where it was much easier to count. I should maybe just say before it was um, done um, that, you know, you would have a little bit of tissue and you would cut it in, in thin slices and then reconstruct the chromosomes of a cell. So it's actually astonishing that they even came up with the, with a good count because um, afterwards it was just, you know, one cell and the chromosomes nicely flatted out and you could actually really count them. That's at least, you know, you still needed to know what to count. Um, so, so that's uh, why this happens in the mid in the mid fifties with this increased interest in cancer. Also, it was you know the um, chromosomes were implicated in cancer. There was this idea that cancer was actually something, you know, something a, a disease of the chromosomes somehow. And so, and and that again was connected then to to the radiation story. So it was really this combined interest. Um, and uh, in, in the bigger development and better development of techniques and then the recount. Now, you need so you need the count. They had one before, but now you have these better techniques. You have the confirmation of the count because more and more people were moving into the field. And so there were more and more observations. And it's only once you have a fixed count that you can actually see something like... Um, a different count, right? And be and be confident that this is really a different count. There's something else going on, and not, not just me counting and someone else will find another count, right? So, but that there is a real difference, and so that's also why the first sort of what they then described as chromosome diseases um, came after that, right? They came in the late 1950s, 1959, actually the first observation that really um, linked particular chromosome uh, variations to particular uh, clinical syndromes, the biggest example being uh, Down syndrome at the time. Um, did, I, did I answer your question? Yes, yes, no, thank you. So, you know, in chapter two, you're you're discussing essentially then um, the, these, the, these descriptions of illnesses, but then also the establishment of, uh, as you've alluded to, sort of a normal human karyotype. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, you know, what were the what were the details in terms of standardization? Um, was it just about numbers or did images become standardized? And how then were distinctions made between, you know, truly pathological, truly pathological cases versus uh, normal healthy cases? Yeah, so as I said, the more people were working in the field, the more it was important to develop a language where one could describe these chromosomes and also the, the variations in the chromosomes. And um, so there was early on a meeting, 1960. So you know um, that's quite still early on in, in the history of this of this field. And everyone was invited who had already published a human chromosome uh, and with the correlated number of chromosomes and observations. And at the time, this was just a very small uh, club of 13 people, international group from Britain, the U.S., Sweden. Japanese uh, scientist, uh, a small group. If you if you actually look where these people came from, it, it, it they were all this connection to the to the atomic stories, right? With the one exception being Sweden, that had a long tradition 
of uh, plant chromosome research. Um, and so they um, decided on a, 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 a very a, a clear way of the numbering of the chromosomes and how to describe them uh, and how to order them. And um, yeah, you know, even if this was just establishing a nomenclature, it was called a nomenclature meeting, in a way it also established what the normal human chromosome is, against which then the variation, um, uh, you know, every obs observation then had, was always in relation to this normal human chromosome. Um, of course, you know, and they discovered very quickly that not all variations that were observable were necessarily uh, clinically relevant. So that um, this then very clearly became, it became clear that the story is actually very complex, right? And we, I mean, you know, we have the same story, actually the identical story now with the genomic, in the genomic field, right? So there are many variations, but which variations are meaningful is, is a much more difficult, a difficult question. So in relationship to, you know, as you've said, which variations are meaningful, I think that brings us really quite well into your discussion in chapter three, the X and Y chromosome, um, where you delve into the controversies surrounding chromosomal analysis and societal ideas about crime and deviance. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about these very sensationalist cases and longitudinal studies surrounding the so-called XYY karyotype and its relationship to perceived ideas about male violence and aggression. Yeah, so initially, um, that's probably the most famous case in the history of this, of this field of cytogenetics is the XYY case. So initially, so you know, it was easy. I mean, there was there was a lot of focus on the on the sex chromosomes from the beginning, and there are historical and technical reasons for that. Maybe we don't need to go into detail here, but also once they had these techniques, cytogenetics were really keen to test all kinds of people. They tested thousands of people. They did complete surveys, right? And and and, and often. They look in a particular institutions, right? They look in, in clinics, but also in schools, or, um, or also in in, um, uh, in mental hospitals and um, in prisons, and so that's what was this uh, people were doing. And here in um, in a study done by a group in Edinburgh that was very active in this early years of uh, chromosome research. They um, they um, surveyed all the people in a particular high-security psychiatric institutions. And here they find this correlation between XYY karyotype, an unusual karyotype, a normal karyotype would be XY for male or XX for female, but here they had these XYY karyotypes and, um, and there were um, a, a high number of, uh, a relative high number of those, and so there came out this one article in, uh, in the Nature with this um, article making the connection, especially in the in the title of uh, between this karyotype and aggressivity, um, and male karyotype and aggressivity. And this um, uh, this this finding actually couldn't stand the uh, didn't stand. Um, uh, further scrutiny. It, it, it's, yes, that there were a few more cases of those, in particular in institutions, that, that different researchers confirmed, but not the connection to aggressivity. 
But that very quickly sort of became a very big story. People really picked it up. It was also picked up uh, for in, 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 the, in the courts for the possibility to, um, to argue for, uh, you know, reduced responsibility. If that's something that is in your gene that makes you more aggressive, then there is maybe um, some attenuating um, strategies. Uh, that one can pursue. So um, that very quickly became um, a, a very big uh, media story. And initially, pathogeneticists were actually quite pleased that, you know, their, their, their new studies um, had this big um, exposure, but uh, very quickly they thought this was very damaging for the field and, and tried to rein it in, but it was much too late. Much too late from the perspective of those, for example, who were sitting on court trials as as experts, mm-hmm. and how it sort of ran away in in the public eye. Yeah, in the public eye, I would say, because you know um, there were a few high uh, you know high visibility court cases where this played a role, um, but actually the jurors didn't much know what to do about this, right, and were quite reluctant. Um, but um, in the public imagination, also because then, you know, there were films and all kinds of things, this idea of the XYY being somehow the, the nature of, 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 of aggressive man um, that uh, has really stuck. And, um, you know, the scientists were arguing to really know what's going on with this XYY karyotype, we need to do long-term studies, you know, from birth to... Um, to to uh, adulthood to see how how um, how children with this type develop because there were very clearly also cases uh, the very first case of an XRY car, um, type was found when uh, a parent of a Down syndrome child uh, was um, karyotyped uh, just to study how, uh, if um, if there was something in the family about this Down syndrome. And that's when they found the XYY. So that was a com- completely asymptomatic case, right? Completely. So, um, so, so there was this call for these um, uh, prospective studies. Uh, there was a lot of effort put into them, but they became very controversial as well, because for various reasons. One reason was that... Um, they often happened without consent because the idea here was if you if you tell parents then you can't do the trial, um, and so they, they they found actually that it wasn't completely without content, uh, 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 consent. They normally had some kind of procedures in place, like they would talk to the doctor but not to the parent or things like that, which were possibly in the fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties. Actually, these studies called went on into the nineties. But they were also controversial because there was this very strong feeling that this is putting the wrong focus, you know, that people are not their genes and uh, that just this focus on the gene was just misplaced. So it seems, for example, you've uh, republished in the text a number of really striking images taken from the newspapers, for example, from the New York Times on a case of uh, Daniel Hugan, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And it seems like there's this intense 
focus on connecting the predictability of the genetic abnormality to this behavior, um, to these uh, aggressive behaviors. And I'm, I'm wondering, for example, if these kinds of images really spurred public fears about, uh, you know, about sort of genetic fate and, and sort of inescapable outcomes. And did this at all influence an increased desire for prenatal testing? Or, or, or how did this influence, um, you know, genetic prenatal testing? Yeah, so the, it, it all happens at the same time, right? So yes, the fact that you can um, uh, diagnose these things, and that, there was uh, really, that was the question in the end, right? And and you, you find articles about what to do with the XYY fetus, right? So, um, and that was a big, uh, a big question. And, um, and, and there was an indication for abortion at the time, but actually the researchers who were involved in these long um, prospective studies, they became really advocates for the XYY and said, you know, it's not a real issue and you can have a normal life and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, and it's only in extreme cases, right? But they could happen anyway, or who knows? Um, but this was the big question. So the, now the story of prenatal testing. So it's not once you have this test, you have prenatal testing, right? So there was much more had to come together for prenatal testing to to happen. So yes, you needed the, the technologies. Chromosome research was an important one. There were also biochemical tests done prenatally. But you needed also ultrasound, you needed amniocentesis, you needed the, uh, abortion law. This happened in different countries at the different times. Um, and so all this had to be in place for even posing the question, right, of mm-hmm. having these prenatal tests, offering them, and uh, and then how to act on them. So, but it, yeah, this is all connected to the development of these technologies and around these, um, in these uh, post-war decades. So while we're on the subject, actually, of sex chromosomes, another particularly absorbing segment of this chapter actually deals with gender verification in uh, sports competitions, which some of our listeners will be familiar with, with contemporary cases of this in the Olympics and so on. I was wondering, actually, if you could tell us a little bit about the story of how these kinds of tests entered the sports arena in the 1960s. Yeah, and this is interesting because it's also a Cold War story, right? So the Cold War story doesn't, the Cold War context doesn't leave us, right? Because this happens actually in this competition between East and West, and maybe some of the listeners here can remember this suspicion. Um, that was really a competition, uh, com- um, these tensions between East and West during the Cold War um, was really something that also played out in the comp- competitive sports context, right? And there was this um, suspicion from Western uh, athletes that Eastern European and Soviet athletes were outperforming Western ones because they were in fact men. And so this is the context in which gender testing and actually parallel to also um, doping testing was introduced um, in a much more systematic way in this competitive sports um, context. And so initially, the first of these tests were always only women, right? They had to parade it naked in front of these, I imagine, mostly uh, uh, male assessors or something. So from from then it seemed a huge step forward, right, to be able to do a little test, a genetic test, where you just needed a blood. At that point, one could do the genetic test from a blood probe, and um, or even from a from a you no know, no you needed a, a blood probe 
um, and then doing this test. That seemed a huge step forward, but very quickly, I mean, you know, as always when these technologies um, were employed, there also were complications. Um, and so, first of all, that was the way how they were performed, so that women athletes out of the blue received this diagnosis, hey, your chromosomes are not correct, you can't compete. And um, so that's also the way this whole came out and was managed and um, these women were exposed. That was one problem. But the other problem was that very quickly it was found out that there are all kinds of confounding factors. And especially the discovery of the androgen insensitivity um, uh, syndrome, this is something that you can actually have an XYY, no, sorry, an XY chromosome, but not being, um, not having the receptors for the testosterone. And so, in effect, um, being a woman, as these women felt. And um, so that showed clearly, indicated clearly that chromosomes on their own can't uh, define gender. And that was also a more general, um, a more general line of critique. And um, so, you know, they were two and four, so they, they were, they were uh, so introduced and then not used and then again introduced. And now, I mean, that continues. And now the question of um, uh, how to define, you know, who is women. I mean, sports is still one of the fields that's really so highly gendered. And they're always, um, and, and to decide what is a woman and not, you know, what are the criteria? For a while, one thought, oh, with the chromosomes, we have an easy test. It turns out it's not so easy. Uh, chromosome tests are still one element of this more complex uh, assessment. Uh, now, the latest is that they have um, established testosterone levels um, to define if you're a woman or not. But this is also highly contested. And also, of course, every boundary is, 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 is super um, arbitrary. So yeah, it's a very fascinating story that history that continues, I think, to have very important relevance for contemporary discussions. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. So thus far, we've been talking mainly about chromosomal research and relationship to individual identities, individuals. And I, I think um, it would be interesting to know a little bit more about how this kind of research was used in population studies um, with larger data sets. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difficulties associated with large scale research using these methods that often took a lot of time. You've mentioned before that it took quite a long time to train the human observers, um, and then also for them to carry out their work with such large numbers of people. So if we could talk a bit about automation um, and what were some of the important technological developments that enabled it? Yeah, so this was, you know, the, the people who really pushed these technologies, they had uh, an ever-growing ideas of what they could do with the technologies. And so they wanted to have test thousands of people, for instance, also for uh, radiation surveillance, right? Um, the world population, ideally. And so really the question was, the bottleneck was um, doing the tests because it needed um, a lot of, uh, it, it needed time, uh, you know, skilled people and time to do the testing. And also it's not that you just look at one, uh, one cell for every, a di diagnosis or every observation you do, you would least uh, you would actually use hundred cells um, because they are all, you don't want to have artifacts, you don't want to have all kinds of things, 
and also there are the cases of mosaicism that actually some people have some threads that are this way and others they are that way. So for all these reasons, you needed for every single uh, analysis, you needed more than one. So it was um, that was a real issue. How can we get all this testing done? And so very early on, they tried. Um, there, there was the idea to automate that. And so this was pattern recognition with computers for whoever. This was very early in the 60s. They started uh, um, working with this. They actually thought this could become a test case for the development of this um, computerized um, pattern recognition. It was, um, you know, another pro uh, system that was followed at the time was um, a reading of texts. But it was actually considered that chromosome readings was more difficult because the characters, so to say, you know, don't live like in a line. They lie in all different orientations and don't have this, you know, variation. You're actually really interested in the variations, right? So it was considered more difficult than text reading. Text reading also needed a while to develop. Um, but the, the, this continued because it was consider, considered this could be more interesting for biology more generally or for the sciences more generally. So a lot of research was put into that. But, you know, the researchers very quickly found that um, the human eye can, or the human observer can do tricks that are very difficult for the um, machine to mimic. And so what they worked towards were actually this integrated or combined system that, you know, the, the machine would sort of pre-sort things and then the human observer would come in uh, and uh, do the last bit of analysis. And that's, as, uh, as it still happens today, the human observer is still crucial, even if this automation has, of course, developed much. Well, there is something relatively comforting about the idea that the human observer can't become completely obsolete in our practices, isn't there? Um, so what, what, kind, what kinds of questions did chromosome researchers working on population studies aim to, to answer? What, what were they looking for in terms of um, understanding greater variability in, in human populations? Yeah, so they studied, you know, populations can be all kinds of populations. They can be clinical populations or they can be institutionalized populations, as we already briefly discussed. But also they were trying uh, to, to do, you know, um, studies of populations, different populations around the world. And um, they were not always huge in numbers because also there were problems in, in just, uh, you know, convincing people. This was done uh, often and piggybacked on this uh, more uh, anthropological um, or, um, uh, surveys or studies. Um, but what, what the strategists wanted to find out, I think, was partly um, evolutionary studies of, uh, of human populations. And that was the idea of this far-flung isolated populations um, that, um, you know, somehow preserved, you know, were like fossils from the past and um, that you could discover that this was still the idea, you know, that we want to know how, hu how humans develop over the long run and what this radiation was in the background, right? Or also environmental toxins and so on, diseases, how they change the, the, the chromosomes and to do that, they, you wanted to go as far back in time as possible. So there was this attraction of um, karyotyping um, what they called isolated or sometimes also primitive people. There was actually a, a program from even from the World Health Organization for a while funding, funding these studies. 
but was also always in the background was to find uh, chromosomal differences between different populations. And this was uh, an elusive search, um, but there, this belief that these differences would be there. Um, and by that time, the studies had advanced, right? And initially, it was just about counting chromosomes, but then, you know, new techniques developed that were actually you could stain chromosomes in a particular way that they developed the, that you could see bands on the single chromosomes that were sort of characteristic for single chromosomes, but also here you could see much finer uh, changes in the chromosomes, right? Because with the bands you had much more to compare with, right? You could see that a small band had disappeared or not disappeared, so it's like stripes along the chromosomes. So they hope to find some minor chromosomal changes differences in different populations, um, which is something which still goes on today, right? And um, eventually they did find some changes, uh, some differences in the lens of, of Y chromosomes, or they thought they found. And of course, with the genomic technologies, they have, they have well, taken up from here. So this brings me to a question then about chapter five, uh, entitled Of Chromosomes and, and DNA, where you write initially, that your aim is to push back against the perception that chromosome research was just old-fashioned biology that was eventually superseded by molecular approaches. If you could tell us a little bit about some of the ways in which your research has revealed these intersections and dependencies between microscope and test tube-based approaches to chromosomes and DNA, I think our listeners would find that very interesting. Yeah, I think, the, the you know, in a way, it's, it's that both these research traditions worked on putting, you know, on 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 putting the genes uh, uh, and and genetics in the center. You know, very much sort of working on we are our genes. This this dominating um, place that really genetics has in our in our times. I mean, I think it's just about being a little bit criticized. But it's still very the dominant view. Um, so they both worked on this. But I think the example which is strongest, where one can see these links, is really in the in the um, in the mapping in the mapping of human genes, because that's something that we now may think this is something which comes out of these genomic traditions. That's what we do now is doing this genomic um, sequencing. But in reality, I mean, gene, uh, um, gene mapping was happening with the cytogenetic techniques much before molecular, molecular biologists came along. And, it's, um, and, then, and then they had their workshops and, you know, they had also a place, a, a structure in place of these international workshops where everyone working on it would come together and collect and, you know, on, on the different chromosomes and doing the, the, the uh, sort of building up this map in this uh, concerted effort. And then, you know, eventually cytogenetic um, molecular biologists started coming to these meetings and bringing in the new techniques. And cytogeneticists at the beginning were very open because they thought every technique is good for us, right? We just want to get on with this job. Mm -hmm. But eventually, these uh, genomic technologies took over um, um, in the late 1980s when there was this decision that, uh, you know, this full sequencing of the human genome would be funded. By Congress and then also uh, in, in, in European institutions and more worldwide. Um, eventually, this poor sequencing uh, took off, and this um, 
cytogenetics were pushed, you know, initially they were very much involved in the initial uh, conversations, but initially they were pushed at the side. And they much complained because they had always these clinical ideas of, of, of sequencing, not just sequencing, just for the sake of sequencing, but actually um, mapping genes, right, was, was what they were after. And they thought this was uh, sort of forgotten in just the sequencing. Um, and so that's really, I think, one of the things where you can clearly see how, you know, this is a, a field or an effort started by the chromosome researchers, which then was taken off on by the genomic researchers, but somehow continuing in a in some you know different but still connected ways. But also the whole focus about on medical and clinical genetics, you know, once you have this prenatal testing in place with chromosome analysis, but also biochemical tests, then introducing a molecular test. It's easy. You already have all the infrastructure and all the legal frameworks and so on in place, right? So also that's something um, which where there is a clear connection. But also the whole focus, um, also the whole idea that cancer is a genomic, uh, a genetic research, um, and a genetic um, disease, um, and also the focus on population studies, also these uh, differences, uh, racial differences, cancer studies. This we all find also already. In, um, in the chromosome studies of the earlier decades. And by the way, the chromosome studies do continue. They are not, um, um, you know, the, the, the molecular studies do take over um, also because they can partly be better automated, but there are still some studies um, on, and some diagnosis especially where chromosome studies are crucial and that's especially in the cancer field. Thank you so much. So we're, we're running out of time, but I want to end by asking you, what was the most surprising or unexpected discovery you made when conducting research for your book? I was really intrigued about the fact that these two uh, traditions run parallel, right? Because one could assume that, you know, first you look through the microscope and you have the rough things and descriptive and so on, and then eventually the molecular comes in, the molecular analysis. But no, this is not how these things develop. They really develop side by side. And it somehow shows, I think, that the both ways of looking at these things, the more um, macro level, if you want, and the more molecular, they both have their place. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Shadarevian. It was a pleasure to speak with you for the New Books Network. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time.